When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. I think the last time that we spoke, it was pre-pandemic, I believe. And uh, just the fact that we can be speaking live from the bookstore right before an event that's going to be filled with people is something that is kind of remarkable. Oh, I've, I've missed it so much. And there's just nothing like live events and there's nothing like being in, in, in front of people with readers, talking with readers, seeing their body language. You don't get that on Zoom. Right, right. And, and you're here. Um, we're celebrating the publication that was published last week of Signal Fires. And uh, it's Danny's new novel. It's your new novel. And it's, I have to tell you, it, um, it slayed me in so many ways. And inspired me and others as well. And Thank you. I congratulate you for it. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Yeah. It was it was a really, really, really something. And what 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 is curious to me what, what what I'm really curious about is the fact that when you were here last it was inheritance that you were here for. And I think so many people discovered Danny Shapiro's life story through inheritance. And Danny Shapiro discovered Danny Shapiro's yes, life exactly. story through inheritance. And, and the thing that a lot of people didn't realize is that you had a full life as a novelist mm -hmm. before that. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about where Signal Fires came from. And I know you started it way before even Inheritance, I believe, if I'm not. Oh, I did. I started, I started Signal Fires 15 years ago. Um, I... It was after my memoir, Devotion, came out, and I um, I found these characters. I, dis I discovered them. I knew them. I uh, lived with them. I loved them. And I had this very um, clear idea of the kind of story I wanted to tell and how I wanted to tell it, um, which is, um, I now understand, never a good way to go into a novel. Um, the, it, was, it was a structural um uh, it was a, the construct that I was approaching it with was I wanted to tell the story backward in time. And 
I was aware that there hadn't been very many novels who, you know, successfully employ that structure and that there might be a reason for that. But I was really committed to it. And the thing that I didn't understand that I came to understand and that I wrote myself into a corner in order to understand was that novels that move backward in time, if you continue to move linearly backward in time, you run out of runway. So um, a character, for example, who is born on New Year's Eve of 1999, if you continue to move backward from New Year's Eve of 1999, you really can't have that anything happen to that character anymore. And then you can't have anything to that character moving forward because you're moving linearly backward. So it was... It was a bad idea, but I was really, really married to it. You were invested. In I was. Fiction. And, you know, there are m- many, many ways into a novel. There are characters. There's a sense of place or landscape. Um, there's, a, you know, a moment in history. There's so many ways. But one of them is not with a structure that you're committed to because the structure emerges from the writing. So I put it in a drawer. I remember the moment that I realized it wasn't going to work. I was in Amsterdam, and I I was so completely devastated. I walked around Amsterdam on a beautiful day with my family, just feeling like uh, just so terrible. And I even, I was actually on my way to teach at Sirenland, the writer's conference that, that we run in Italy. And I thought, how can I teach? I've just put a novel in a drawer. And I'm the one everybody's looking at, like I know what I'm talking about, and I've made this terrible mistake, and am I going to tell people? Am I going to be honest about it, or am I just going to put on a happy face? And of course, being me, I ended up telling people within you know minutes of, um, of, of getting there. And then on the final night, when the faculty reads at Sirenland, um, I decided to read from those pages. Um, and I remember um, the writer Karen Shepard said to me, it's like you're presenting us with your dead baby. (laughs) She actually said that. (laughs) And um, that's a bit what it felt like. I, um, but I remember looking into the crowd as I was reading and clocking that people were really moved. And I just didn't know what to do with that because I had written, I knew what I had written was. Because you had the characters. I had the characters. I had what in fact ended up being not the opening, but the, um, the first section of Signal Fires, that was what I read from. There are seven characters um, in Signal Fires um, who are all have more or less equal weight, although I see the central two as this um, young boy when we first meet him named Waldo Shankman, who's 11 when we meet him, and he is an only child. He's very um, unique He's special, he's brilliant, he's obsessed with the cosmos. His parents do not understand him, nor do they appreciate his obsession with the cosmos and the constellations, and they worry about him because he's not quote-unquote normal. And then his across-the-street neighbor um, are a family named the Wilfs, and um, Benjamin Wilf is a physician. When we meet him, he's in his early 60s. Um, His wife, Mimi, uh, we don't meet immediately, but when we meet Ben... He is spending the last night of his, of the life that he's lived in this home on this street called Division Street in this town, fictional town called Avalon, New York, sort of a suburb of New York City. And he's spending the last night in this home that he's raised his family in and that he's lived in for 40 years. And he's lonely. And he's 
surrounded by boxes and his grown kids are not with him. And he's looking out across the street. He's surveying the neighborhood and he sees a young boy, Waldo, across the street who's also at his window. And he is tilting his iPad at the sky because he has an He's app. He's got this great app. He's got this great app. It's a real app. Is it really a real yes, app? Yes. The okay. app is called Starwalk. And if ever a novel was inspired by an app, this might be it. <laughs> um, I found it to be such a poetic app. Um, it shows you, um, you, you know, you point it at the sky and it will, it will, it will show you the constellations at that particular moment. Um, but it will also... Um, if you type in a date, any date in time, it will reveal to you the constellations um, at that place and time in that moment in history. Um, and so this is Waldo's um, obsession because it makes him feel grounded. It makes him feel like he knows his coordinates. And that's really where they are when we meet them. But time careens in this novel. It It moves back to 1985 and an, a night in which, and it begins with a real bang. I mean, there's a night in which the Wolf children are involved in a car accident that then completely transforms this family because they, they all decide, it's not even a decision, they keep it a secret. They keep the, the, what happened that night and the tragedy that unfolded that night as something that they never speak of ever again. And the novel found its structure, right? The novel found its structure because those characters were like asleep in the drawer for all those years. And I did a whole lot more living during those years. And at the start of the pandemic, I was cleaning up my office closet I was Marie Kondoing my office closet, and there were these pages. And I just sat there and I reread them. And two things happened. One was, I thought to myself, this doesn't suck. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the habit of, I mean, not rereading old work, and when I do, not admiring it. But I thought, well, this is, this is actually good. But the other thing that was more, um, a much more intense realization was, and now it's 2020. And I've written these two sections of this book backward in time. One takes place on one night in 2010, and the next one takes place on one night, New Year's Eve of 1999, going into 2000. The, the New Year's Eve that we all thought was going to be the end of the world, which right. is such a quaint notion now, right? And I thought, now it's 2020, and it, and it cracked open for me. I thought, who would Waldo be? He was 11 when we meet him. He would be 21. What would he be doing now? Um, Theo, who is Ben Wilf's son, he's a chef in Brooklyn when we first meet him with this restaurant that just kind of unexpectedly takes off. And he's the least likely, you know, hot young restaurateur you could imagine. Who would he be in 2020? What would he be doing in Brooklyn, in New York City during the first wave of COVID? Um, and I didn't remotely want to turn it into a COVID novel or spend a lot of time in 2020. We don't spend a lot of time in 2020. And I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciated the fact that it wasn't a COVID novel. Yeah. It was a it's a glimpse. I mean, to me, it's a human impulse to want to be able to glimpse the future. Um, and these characters go through some really challenging and hard things. And I think the thing that makes them 
and makes readers feel a lot of hope reading the novel is that we get these little glimpses like the window shade goes up and we see something of, of who what they're, their lives who they're become. going to become. Yeah, that was, for me, opening that up is what made the characters, it's what made me connect with the characters more than anything else. Yeah. You know, when you started thinking of the structure, it became so propulsive because you wanted to get to the next section to see where Danny was taking us. What year were we going to yeah. be exploring at that point? I love, I love hearing that. You know, one of my favorite um, essays by Virginia Woolf is this essay called Moments of Being. And she writes about these moments of being in our lives when we're at our most alive. And um, the difference between those moments and the cotton wool, as she calls it, of, you know, daily existence. And the moments of being don't necessarily have to be big dramatic moments, but they're moments of revelation of some sort. And I think in retrospect that that's something that I was thinking about and trying to do. And also when I realized that I could break up the linear structure, um, that I could... And I had been writing in this way for a while in, in my nonfiction, in my memoirs, where um, the kind of refracted, kaleidoscopic narrative where the reader has the pleasure of figuring out what belongs to what, you know, how the puzzle pieces fit together. And once I understood that, the idea that I could leave, I could leave us off in a dramatic moment in 2010 and go careening all through time in these characters' lives because the reader would know and feel safe in knowing that we would be returning. We would be getting back to the night in question and finding out more. And then we could leave again and then return again. And that was so satisfying for me as I was writing it. And it was satisfying as a reader. And the other kind of cool thing, you know, after I finished the novel and really started reflecting on it, was the idea of how the, the actual structure of the novel thematically reflected so much of what you were driving at. The whole notion of time, for instance, is very circular in the novel Yes. in terms of the way the characters view time. Yes. Speak about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think both Waldo is really the voice of that in the novel, and I think that's part of his magic. He really experiences time as nonlinear, um, as, as existing in loops, um, that everything that's ever happened is still happening, that um, the past and the future are um, inseparable. Um, and, you know, Waldo, it's not really a spoiler to say he grows up to become a, an esteemed astrophysicist. Um, and really what he's, what he's thinking about as an 11-year-old boy, even though he doesn't have the language for it, are, you know, wormholes. And, you know, just the way that um, time as we experience it marching inexorably forward um, really very well may not be the way time moves at all. And he also, Waldo also has some experience with, with loss and with grief over, over the course of the novel, but he doesn't, he, it, it actually makes him uh, feel um, sort of safer and more grounded and more comfortable because he comes to feel that we, we, that we don't really die. Um, well, and that the grief is happening, the things that happened are happening, but so is life, but and yes. so is everything else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and he, the other thing that he does 
is in his own way as a young boy and as a young adult, he teaches an 80-year-old man quite a lesson. Exactly. I mean, that to me, the friendship that is struck between between Waldo and Ben oh, is, it's, that's the beating heart of the whole book for me. And, you know, that, that, that Ben is able to learn from this, um, from this boy and this young man who, and they share profound connections with each other that we don't know right away and they don't know right away, some of which haven't happened yet, some of which happened in the distant past. Um, but they, they experience, um, life in many ways. Um, I mean, Waldo becomes Ben's teacher and, and Ben, when he is, um, a much older man and is, and is in a state of longing and, and, and grieving, um, for, for his wife. Um, well, and the way, you know, I have to say the strength for me too, was how you basically, um, portrayed their relationship in, in such a movingly spare way. You know, mm. it was spare mm. in some ways, which I really appreciate. I'm less and less interested as a writer in excess language. My earliest work um, is, um, you know, if one, if one metaphor is good, three are better. Right. Um, I was, you know, madly in love with language. I still am, but I have pared down and pared down um, in this... You know, not that my work is minimalist because I don't think it is, but it's, no. um, it's a you 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 hit the essential moments. Yeah, your choices are always the most poignant, I think, mm. uh, which both propels the story, but at the, at the same time is the most moving mm. as, as well. I love that. Yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, you've given us a real treasure here, after the incredible success of Inheritance, uh, I am sure that a writer comes out thinking just how is my next work going to be? What are my readers going to think? Because they know, a lot of readers know you from Inheritance, and here you are presenting them with a novel. And I can tell you from the reads that people have, uh, uh, people I've recommended the book to have read it already, you, know, you can rest assured that your, your readership is, has come along with you on this mm -hmm. journey as well. It's wonderful to hear that. I, I, um, when I finished Inheritance, and even before the book came out, I really felt like, well, this is the end of a particular body of work. Um, you know, I'd like for there to be a boxed set of my memoirs, starting with slow motion and ending with Inheritance, because they belong together. They are, they are the work of a writer who was trying deeply and doggedly and insistently to understand something that she didn't yet understand. And then um, when I did come to make the discovery that helped me to see all of it, that was the end of that body of work. There's, no, there's, there's nowhere else to go with that. And so there was a lot of liberation in that, actually. There was a while there where I really thought, maybe this is it. I, I had a podcast, very absorbing, um, I wrote a screenplay that was interesting. I had never done that before. I really thought, I don't know. And and then I got hit over the head with this novel. And so it wasn't, I knew that I couldn't force anything, that that to force anything for a next book 
would be a big mistake to write out of anxiety or to write out of trying to hit the same note with my readers or anything like that. I mean, that way lies just, you know, just that's just foolhardy. Um, so I didn't know whether my readers would follow me to signal fires, and they do seem to be doing so, which is well, the incredibly... noise. The noise everyone's hearing in the background is a crowd developing <laughs> for that is about to hear you talk about signal fires. But let's talk a little bit because, you know, the the you know your um, your podcast about family secrets, and there are family secrets in this book, and it's amazing to me that you were writing this before all the secrets that were unearthed that you found out about uh, so many years ago. So this whole idea of secrets, there was something that was speaking to you somewhere. Oh, I mean, I, the, the, the file name for Signal Fires in my, in my computer is still Magic Novel because I didn't have a title for a really long time and it felt magical to me. I, I felt like, you know, why, why how, how is it possible that I created the character of Ben Wilf 15 years ago I had no idea that I had a different biological father than the one who I adored, who raised me. And I created this character who is so much like my biological father that it's it's staggering. And I didn't, I never once thought that. I mean, well, I certainly didn't think it before I knew 15 years ago, but when I returned to the novel, I never once thought that. It wasn't until I finished a manuscript and I gave it to my son, Jacob, who was one of my early readers. And Jacob said, my God, it's him. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, it's, it's, it's him. Even in temperament? In temperament. Wow. In, um, in even his, they have the same medical specialty. Um, but more than anything that could just be coincidence, it's, it's temperament, a kind of even keeled nature and, um, and, 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 and yet, a, you know, a very, uh, kind and also, emotionally connected human being. And also, I mean, they're even both readers. I made Ben a reader. Why did I make Ben a reader? He just became a reader. He started, you know, thinking about, he, he thinks he, he thinks about things, you know, through the lens of um, poetry and, and, and prose. And um, so that was kind of this extraordinary revelation, but also that feeling that we have, and I think it was both what I learned along the way in these last 15 years and also the pandemic that really allowed all of us to um, come to know whether we wanted to or not, just how deeply connected we all are, you know, just how dependent on one another we all are. And I mean, to me, that's what the signal fires of the title, you know, um, from the Carolyn Forche, from the Carolyn Forche poem. It's a beautiful beautiful poem yeah. and i'm so glad you selected that as the as the as uh, soon as i read it that yeah. that phrase just leapt out at me where everybody ends and lands and i don't want to it's there's no spoilers that i'm giving away but the the idea of empathy the idea of caring for one another this thing that that is up in the air right now as we sit here a week or two before the election in terms of where we are 
as a people almost all over the world, really, when you yes. see what's happening in Ukraine, in Europe, in Italy, in, in Sweden, all everywhere. Yeah. So you basically are making a very strong statement about really what the essence of life really is, and that is that we all need to have a sense of empathy and be kind with one another. Is that, is that a yeah, fair assessment? No, that's, yes, and kindness is something that's come up again and again and again in, in recent years in my life, and thinking about it and thinking um, that's really what we, what we um, owe one another, I would say. You know, that's our gift to one another, is approaching one another with kindness. But also, you know, secrets are a drumbeat um, for me, and, and throughout the novel, and one of the things I think a lot about in terms of secrets is that they don't allow us to be known. And being known, allowing ourselves to be known, is a gift. It allows others to allow themselves to be known, and that's a gift. And that's, you know, in, in, in terms of this landscape that we're all living in now, there's such a sense of us and them and um well you, absolutely and you talk about the corrosive effect of secrets and it really isn't until the secret of the wilkes family is really discussed more fully right. that people begin to heal exactly it can't happen it can't happen until it's spoken until it's shared until it's owned it can't happen and and they live so much of their lives being too afraid to speak to each other about it, to speak to anyone else about it. One of the characters, the daughter Sarah, has been married for years and years and years and has, and has a family with her, um, her husband who she's never told. Um, so there really is this sort of toxicity of that kind of silence and the shame that creates that kind of silence. And until, until it can be spoken, that shame can't be eradicated. And it's corrosive to every other relationship that they're involved in. Right as well and I'm wondering and I'm asking you is um, there's so many I mean you talk about Theo and his restaurant and are any of these things based on things that you know that are in your own life I mm. mean that whole idea of the restaurant it reminds mm. me of I, I don't know I remember dinner at the homesick restaurant by mm. Ann Tyler and but yet this restaurant you know is such an amazing uh, that in itself is an amazing character I'm so glad you brought that up. I really love that restaurant. And um, it's funny, a friend of mine who read the manuscript early called me up a few days later and said, um, you know, I was out to dinner with my husband and I said, there's this restaurant in Brooklyn we really have to go to. Uh, it was like, like, we have to go. We have to make, it's really hard to get reservations. I loved that. He's like, oh, wait, where did I hear about it? Oh, wait, no, it's in a novel. Um, that 12 Tables, that restaurant, because it has 12 tables, is one of the only aspects of the novel that I knew I kind of knew where it came from as I was writing. And there is this restaurant. I live in rural Connecticut. Um, and there is this restaurant in um, West Cornwall, Connecticut called RSVP. And it opened about 20 years ago. And it's tiny. And um, there, there are two men, a couple who own it. Charles and Guy, and Guy does all the cooking, and Charles does all the serving, and there's a bus, a bus person, and that's it. And the New York Times wrote it up. Oh, also, there's no menu. You know, you, you, you go and you are served, and you better be ready, and you better not have eaten for, a, <laughs> a, you know, like 24 hours. And 
I mean, it's really, it's extreme. There are like 12 courses and you bring your own wine and you, you know, you go with people that you love and you just sit there for a really long time eating. And, um, we used to go there. Oh, and the New York times reviewed it when they first opened and gave it such a rave that they basically stopped taking reservations. And if you called their answering machine would say, you know, hi, you've reached RSVP. Um, we really don't take reservations, but if we have a cancellation, you can leave your name and number. There were people who had their tables every week, the same, you know, the same evening. They're only open three days a week. Um, and we, my husband and I were very close um, with the great Czech filmmaker Milos Forman. And Milos's favorite time of day was when he would open the restaurant in a, in a, in a restaurant, for, you know, open, open the menu in a restaurant for dinner. And he loved RSVP and we loved Milos. And we spent many, many years going almost every week to this really extreme dining experience. <laughs> and on Sundays usually, and having an early dinner with Milos and his wife Martina. And I came to wonder about the other diners, right? There was a, there was a woman who came by herself every Sunday. She was probably 75 years old. She drove up on a Harley. Um, she was about, wow. you know, five feet tall. She would sit there by herself and order you know, have a demi bottle of wine with her and, and, and just dine and not read, not do anything just, and I made up stories about her in my mind and, um, and others too. There was just such a sense of, um, this place being, um, you know, a place of, of these different characters and the love of, of the, of the food, um, on the part of, of, of the chef and the way that he would look to see that you ate everything and that you loved everything. Food was, was and is, it's still open, this restaurant, is, is love. And I didn't, ha I didn't have a Theo in my life, but Theo became very, very clear to me around the development of that restaurant, really. The same way Waldo sort of emerged for me out of this poetic app. Um, it's so, I mean, it's a fascinating thing where, you know, where characters come from and how they, how they, evolve, um, when they do. Um, but, but that, that was Theo. And then I come, came to really see that he, I mean, he adored his mother and they, as a child, as a very awkward kid, he spent all his time in the kitchen with his mother and that's where he felt the safest and that's where he felt the most loved. So, th and, and then he's also so damaged by this secret and keeping the secret all these years that the only way that he knows how to love is by is by feeding people and peeking through the curtain. You know, he loves them. Um, he doesn't want to socialize with them. He would not be able to have a conversation with them if he ran into them on the street, but he loves them. The other thing that was moving for me was the was the marriage as well. Uh, the marriage of um, of Ben and his wife. I mean, it was you know, it 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 was it, it was just so beautiful and so so finely tuned their relationship and um, um, that too was something that I think you got you just nailed so beautifully I love hearing that and I don't think I, I couldn't have nailed it uh, 15 years ago um, those 15 years were um, you know gave me the gift of having a much longer marriage 
of having a sense of, you know, both the love and the accommodation and the ways that two people grow together over time um, in a in a long and contented marriage. And and in the interim, I even wrote a memoir, Hourglass, about my own long and contented marriage. And I think that um, I came to know Ben and Mimi and what their love for each other was really all about and the ways, I mean, I think Ben left to his own devices would have spoken of what happened that night. And it was Mimi who um, really couldn't, really didn't want to, really wanted to um, try very hard to make it go away. And Ben accepted that because, because it was what she needed. No, and I'm really happy that you talked about, you know, the 15 years ago and and today and what that did, because I know Michael, your husband, and the two of you, you know, have been through your own, your own stuff, you know, not personally, but, but medically and other things. And I, you know, I know you both and I, and I, and I, and I see the, the caring and the support that you each give one another. And that comes through also. So, um, with such love in the, in the novel as well. I really feel, I think the reason why I think of it as this, this magic novel is because I didn't expect to go back to it. I really thought this is the one that is going to have gotten away. And, um, I wasn't even haunted by it. It's been, it had been so long, but it was like Ben and Waldo and Mimi and Sarah and Theo and Waldo's parents, Shankman and Alice, they were all sort of like just waiting for me. Yeah. Um, and I needed to live all of that life. It's beautiful. So it's as if, you're, as if your life had to catch up with your characters. My life had to catch up with my characters. I, 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 I had to deserve them. I had to, I mean, if not for my discovery about my dad, if not for Michael's illness, if not for the pandemic... I don't think that this book would exist, and I'm sure it wouldn't. Um, that was all, um, it all fed into the, the sort of the deepening and the compassion that I feel for all of these characters, including the ones who, um, you know, there's one in particular, Waldo's dad, who it might be difficult to understand his anger toward his son. I understood it. Um, and and really had you know was fond of Shankman. I mean, my as as the as the writer you know, writing through Shankman's behavior, my feeling about him many times was oh Shankman, oh Shankman like get out of your own way like you, you're better you you should be better than this. You have this magical son. Well, you know? he knows that too. He does. So I think I gave he him some talks of, about that as well. He, he does. He comes to realize that he's really messed up the one thing in life that you really right. really shouldn't can't mess up and that if you do you can't fix later. Well, he also didn't appreciate the role. He didn't appreciate what he had. Because he, he ultimately, didn't. ultimately, Waldo is Waldo, and Waldo is fine. But, but it's Shankman who lost out. The father lost out by not being in the presence of his son and having that deep relationship. Michael is fine. Yes, Michael <laughs> and is it, entirely well. In fact, well. he's got a film coming out, right? He does. He does. It's coming out in March. Um, it's called A Little White Lie. 
and it's starring Michael Shannon and Kate Hudson and Zach Braff and Don Johnson and Divine Joy Randolph. And, and, and I did have a chance to see a, a bit of the trailer, and everyone is in for a big treat when that comes out. Really excited. Um, and and also so thrilling to see in life the way that, you know, here, here he was so sick, and um, his really his life was in jeopardy, and he recovered... And within six months, he was on a movie set for a film that he had been trying to get off the ground for seven years um, that just kept on, well, you know, I mean, films are hard to get off the ground. And then he had to shut down for a and bit then, because of the pandemic. And then they had to shut down with eight shooting days left because of COVID. And then 400 days to the, exactly 400 days later, they resumed. They got that whole crazy cast back together and they finished the film. Both of you are persevering, your examples of incredible perseverance, I think. Thank you for that. You know, you just <laughs> never know what's around the corner. What is around the corner for you? What's next? Do you know yet at all? Or I really don't. I mean, I'm on, I'm on a, a pretty long book tour for, for Signal Fires, which I'm thrilled about, and it's so great to be Back in person. And then you talked about your screenplay that you wrote. Oh, well, actually, I do know what's next, Mitchell. <laughs> Sorry. Well, so I, I, I did, I, I, ha I have a screenplay that seems to be heading in the direction of a movie getting made, so that's really thrilling. Um, but I also, um, I'm writing the television pilot for Signal Fires, which is in development. Um, so when you said what you said about the sky and the stars and, you know, and, and, and sort of panning down and 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 to like the houses, um, it's exactly what I'm. It's, it's at least at the very this very moment. It's you don't the opening. Need to, you don't it's the to, opening of my pilot. Just so you know, and I need no credit. It's really <laughs> it already <laughs> is the opening. But I was like, how did Mitchell know? <laughs> That's the magic of this book. I think you're an industry in and of yourself at this point. I think I'm just a storyteller, and I came you. to be liberated by really knowing my own story. Finally, after a lifetime of going, wait, I don't get it. How am I me? I don't understand how I'm me. It actually doesn't make sense. And then it did finally make sense. And that was hugely liberating. And it's no accident that the podcast came in the wake of that. And that, um, you know, I had this thought as I was reading, I guess I can say what it is, Sue Miller's most recent novel, Monogamy, at the beginning of the pandemic, and I read it, and I thought, this should be a movie. And I was on the phone with my producer, because Inheritance is also being developed as a feature film, and I said, I think this should be a movie. And she said, me too. And I said, I think I should adapt it. <laughs> Where did that come from? I had never adapted anything before. So there's a freedom in being sort of at this stage of life and feeling like it's all storytelling. The, I mean, the podcast is storytelling. The podcast is writing. I mean, I have my guests on, and then I create scripts around their story. And the way that I think of myself and my role um, with, with Family Secrets is I'm holding the story. I'm holding my guests' story. That's my job. And, and I guess the most important thing is you now know your own story, right? That's it. And that's why... I think secrets and, you know, on Family Secrets, I always say to my guests, do you wish you had never found out at the end of every episode? I don't always, it doesn't always make it into the episode, but I always ask because I'm curious. Not one person has ever said, yeah, I wish I hadn't found out. It's just, 
um, it's the old adage of the truth will set you free. I really, I remember even in the very beginning of my discovery, in all the shock and all the pain, I had a moment, I, I, out loud, I went, oh, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. A big sigh, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you hear all the noise, so I, people are gathering. I could are. talk to you all night, but we're going to let the hordes talk to you as well. Danny, just having you here on The Literary Life is always just remarkable. And until next time. It's a joy for me. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Mitchell. Thank you, Danny.